I'm going to tell you that it was in January 30th, uh, 1948, that Mohandas Gandhi was assassinated. So on this day, back in 1948, he was assassinated. And the reason I bring him up is because part of his philosophy and his work as an individual uh, was tied to the idea of nonviolence, nonviolence protest. And it's been said that most of what he got in terms of uh, his philosophy came from the Sermon on the Mount. And he read the Sermon on the Mount every day uh, of his life. And that was what impacted him. The other thing that impacted him, unfortunately, was the 20 years he spent in South Africa where apartheid impacted him in a negative kind of way. So while he embraced what he saw in the Sermon on the Mount, he rejected Christianity because of the prejudice of the people in South Africa at the time. So uh, just a kind of a background as we think of continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. I was thinking this week, you know, when we think of uh, our Christian faith, so much of what we think about is focused on Mount Calvary, the work of Jesus Christ as, his, uh, as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitutionary atonement. And that's really what we focus on as the heart of our Christian faith. But you think about it for a moment. If Jesus loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins and gave himself for our salvation, shouldn't we also think seriously about what he tells us about how to live? And so we move from Mount Calvary to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus tells us in all of his love and all of his grace and all of his mercy about how we should live. And so it's important, I think, that we balance those. We are people who believe in the atonement. But are we also people who believe in what Jesus told us to live? How he told us to live? And that's the challenge, I think, that we face as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at the introduction and the words that Jesus said when he talked about what his perspective is on the law. And now for the rest of chapter 5, we see how this is played out in the way in which Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he talks about the law, and then he says, but I say to you, and he expands our understanding of the law and what it's all about. We're going to look at three of those this morning. Uh, in chapter 5, if you have a Bible there with in front of you or uh, on, on your phone or wherever you're looking at the text. But there's a series of, I have heard it, uh, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Verse 21, I've heard it said, but I say unto you. Verse 23, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 27, you've heard it said. Verse 31, it has been said. Verse 33, I, you've heard that it's been said. Verse 30, print small. 38, and then verse 43. So there's uh, six of these, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. We're going to look at four of those this morning as we go through the text. 
So let's begin by reading from verse 21 and following. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out of, uh, until you have paid the last penny. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not commit murder, but I say to you, even if you're angry, you're in trouble. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle John says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And Jesus is referring here now to the sixth commandment. And as he refers to that commandment, he says, there's the act of murder. But I want you to understand that murder really begins in the heart when you have angry feelings. We all have anger issues. Charles Gore said, Our Lord raises deliberately the allowed sin of thought and feelings to the level previously occupied by the overt act. According to the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, the intention ranks with the act, the desire to destroy with the deed itself. What Jesus is doing is moving us to understand that it's not simply the overt act, but it's the emotions that drive us and it's the, what we have in our heart which causes us to be guilty. Anger is a feeling that seizes our body and immediately impels us toward interfering with or possibly even harming someone who's gotten in our way, who's thwarted our will or maybe interfered with our life in some way. And that can be at various levels or various degrees. We can choose to will or not to will anger. Anger first comes spontaneously, but we can actively receive it and decide to indulge it, or we can let it go. Anger indulged instead of waved off always has an element of self-righteousness or, or vanity or pride in it. Our pride has been hurt. We feel slighted, and therefore we get angry. Norm Wright in his book on anger says, anger motivates persons to hate, to wound, to damage, to annihilate, despise, scorn, disdain, loathe, vilify, curse, abhor, ridicule, laugh at, humiliate, shame, beat up, fight, offend, or bully another person. We live today 
in the midst of an angry society. There's a lot of anger in our world, and we can get caught up in that. And we can be angry about lots of things these days. But Jesus makes it quite clear that we as kingdom people ought to live in a different way, and we ought to respond to anger. We, we will all get angry. But it's how we respond to anger under the guidance of the Spirit of God which makes us different, and it makes us followers of Jesus and kingdom people. The text goes on and says that even if you say raka, uh, you are guilty. Uh, raka, which in those days uh, was a derisive way of speaking to somebody, it's like saying, you blockhead, you numbskull. Uh, it was dissing somebody verbally. And we can do that. We can kill people's reputation by the words that we say. I remember as a kid, a little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Not so. It's amazing what can be done with words. We can kill a person's confidence by whispering the criticisms. We can destroy a person's spirit and soul by what we say. Our words can kill. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the angry word is a blow struck at our brother or sister, a stab at their heart. The text goes on and says, if you say to someone, you fool, you are guilty. An expression of abuse, vilifying a person's hosti uh, person uh, with hostility, and finding expression in verbal abuse. We hear a lot these days about verbal abuse, domestic abuse, not necessarily with the physical side of things, but destroying people with our words. And so Jesus, after acknowledging that this is at the heart of what brings about murder, begins to help us to understand what we are supposed to do. He says in that verse 25, or verse 23, when you are aware of your anger, the first thing you are to do is to recognize that when you're taking your offering to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother. Reconciling with our brother or sister means leaving our gifts at the altar. In other words, what Jesus is saying is stop the religious charade. Going to church and sitting piously with contempt in our heart or anger or bad feelings towards someone is not appropriate. Practical, authentic Christianity is much more than religious practices. It's relational. And at the heart of the Christian faith is an attitude adjustment with regard to those with whom we have issues. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if we despise our brother or sister, our worship is unreal, and it forfeits every divine promise. So how do we handle this? We settle with our adversary. He talks about settling quickly. At the end of it, he says, if you have something, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, 
I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Settling, anger issues, settling with our adversaries, settling with someone with whom we feel we've been slighted or wronged may actually be money ahead. You may be money ahead by settling rather than dragging out the consequences. Proverbs says a lot about anger. Let me just read some of the Proverbs. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger appeals, appeases contention. Chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who takes the city. Good sense makes a man restrain his anger, and it is his glory to overlook transgression or an offense. Chapter 19, verse 11. Chapter 22, verse 24. Make no friendships with a man given to anger, and with a wrathful man do not associate. And finally, verse 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 11 says, A fool utters all his anger, but a wise man keeps it back and stills it. Jesus says there's a lot more to murder than simply killing. It has to do with what comes from within us and drives us to do things that can ultimately lead to murder. We also live in a violent society, a society where anger, has not, where anger is not handled in the right kind of way. As a result, we experience the violence and the anger in our, in our society. We as kingdom people, under the leadership and control of the Spirit of God, ought to be different when it comes to how we manage our anger. The next section, where Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say unto you, begins in verse 27. Let me read that text. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you your whole body to go into hell. Then the next one is tied with it, verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a woman uh, so divorced commits adultery. Jesus says there's more to adultery than the physical act of sex. He says the lustful look is the same as committing adultery. There's a kind of look that is pure and authentic and appreciative. And then there's a kind of look that becomes lustful. One kind sees beauty in the beholder and, as a, and it is a sees the object as a wonderful gift of God's creation and acknowledges it as a gift of God's creation. The other sees the object as one for their own satisfaction. It becomes an object to be used. 
And it's the kind of look that mentally turns that person into a sex object. What's the difference between the two? Well, Billy Graham once said that the lust is the second look. That's when looking becomes lusting. Jesus says it's an issue of the eyes. Lusting look. We live in an age when pornography is a huge problem. What we look at. Somebody's estimated that the uh, pornography industry is a $97 billion industry. When I pastored in Canada, the Tri-City Ministerial for Port Moody, Coquitlam, and Port Coquitlam, uh, had a fellow come in and speak to our ministerial association from the Living Water Organization, which is an organization that handles uh, people who are dealing with pornography. And the fellow, I'll never forget what he said. He said, every man who has a private access to a computer has looked at pornography. I had a counselor friend that I met with from time to time in, in Port Moody and uh, for, for, uh, Fort Langley. And uh, we would meet from month to month. And one of the things that he told me, he says, as a, as a counselor, the majority of his work uh, was, had to do with some form of sex addiction and mainly with Christians. Uh, according to a survey that was done by MarketWire, it's not just men who have issues with pornography. They discovered from their survey that 60% of women acknowledged significant struggles with lust. And 20% of women in their survey admitted to looking at pornography on an ongoing basis. Jesus says that's where it starts. It starts with what we look at. So he, asks, he suggests that we solve that issue by dealing with the issue of lust. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. What's Jesus saying? I like the way Chuck Swindoll interprets this. Chuck Swindoll says, what Jesus was saying is that if you're made of dynamite, don't get a job stoking blast furnaces. Throughout history, Jesus' words have been understood and misunderstood in a variety of ways. In the early church, in, in the third century, Origen, uh, one of the early church fathers, actually castrated himself because he felt that that was what would help him. Uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 outlawed that practice. Others have seen it in a metaphorical way. In other words, what Jesus was advocating is not a literal self-maiming, but a ruthless moral self-denial. As John Stott says, not mutilation, but mortification is the path to holiness. As Job said in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I like what uh, Dallas Willard said. He said he thinks maybe Jesus was being a bit satirical here as he said this, cut off your hand and pull it, pluck out your eyes. He said, truly, if, you're, if you blind yourself, you cannot look at another woman to lust after her because you cannot look on her at all. And if you sufficiently dismember yourself, you will not be able to do any wrong action. 
This is the logic by which Jesus reduces righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees to the absurd. In their view, the law could be satisfied and thus goodness attained if you avoided sinning. And you could avoid sinning simply by eliminating the body parts that made sinful action possible. Then you would roll up into heaven as a mutilated stump. You can cut off your hand, you can pluck out your eye, and still deal with lust in your heart. And what Jesus was trying to say is, look, that's where it starts. And it's only by the Spirit of God that you begin to deal with that by taking action which limits the temptations which are before you. It's interesting that in the next passage, verse 31, he shifts to the issue of divorce, verses 31 and 32. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus deals here with divorce after having dealt with the issue of anger and contempt and then the obsessive desire and lust. As someone has said, just ask yourself how many divorces would occur and in how many cases the question of divorce would never have come up if anger, contempt, and obsessive fantasizing desires were eliminated. The answer, of course, is hardly at all because that's so much of what drives divorce. Jesus is here dealing with both the Old Testament and his contemporary situation because in the Old Testament, Adultery was not mentioned as a reason for divorce. In fact, the solution for divorce in the Old Testament was punishable by stoning, according to Leviticus 20. But Moses did write a bill of divorcement, and in the book of Deuteronomy it talks about the fact that, and in Jeremiah, that uh, the divorce was to protect a woman and keep the man from divorce, leaving in a fit and anger, and then wanting to return and doing a serial uh, divorce and not leaving the woman with any uh, protection. And so when Jesus was asked about it, he said, yes, Moses wrote you a bill of divorcement, but that's because of the hardness of your heart. But that was not the way it was to be from the very beginning. The contemporary situation in which Jesus found himself in New Testament times, according to Josephus, was the difference that the rabbis had with regard to divorce. Rabbi Shammai took a very rigorous approach to the Moses law and limited very severely the reasons for divorce. Whereas the Rabbi Hillel took a very lax view, and according to Josephus, Hillel said you could be divorced for uh, having a wife who was an incompetent cook or if you simply lost interest in her. And so Jesus was responding to the contemporary situation as well. And when he was asked, what do you say about divorce? He said, it wasn't that way in the beginning, but Moses wrote a bill of divorcement. And he was saying... There's a difference between giving permission and promoting it. There's a difference between advocating divorce and acknowledging the reality of divorce given the fact of the hardness of the human heart. There's more to murder than killing. There's more 
to adultery than sex. And there are more, there's more to lies than swearing or making an oath. And that's the last one we look at this morning in verse 33. Follow along and I'll read it. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, or by, or, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, or your, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What's at issue? It's the Old Testament statements, although it's not specifically defined as a commandment, that we are not to lie, we're not to deceive our neighbor, uh, you shall not swear by my name uh, falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. The Pharisees had tried to limit the application of the oath as it's described in the Old Testament. The oath would only be valid if it invoked the name of God. And if you didn't invoke the name of God, it was not accurate. Jesus point out, points that the precise wording of a vow is irrelevant. People's words are going to be credible or not. Verbal manipulation is wrong. Swearing by anything includes God because God is the creator of all things. And so Jesus is basically showing the fallacy of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes when they said, unless you, you, if you uh, swear by anything but God, uh, it's not relevant. But he says, wait a minute, God creates all things. We learn to use language to fool or manipulate people. Recently in the New York Times, there was a report that 91% of people regularly tell, fail to tell the truth. We live in a world of fake news. And quite frankly, I've gotten to the point where I don't know whether I can believe anybody, either left or right. And we talk about the big lie and we talk about, you know, people having an agenda and trying to basically shove propaganda at us. And we live in that kind of a world. 20% of people said they don't make it through a day without telling a little white lie. You maybe heard about the four students who were uh, coming to take a, a college exam, and on the way they were quite late. And so they decided they would make up a story to tell the professor so that they could take the exam. They all came in and said, uh, we had a flat tire, and uh, that's why we're late. And so the professor said, okay, uh, I will give you uh, a chance to make up the test. And she gave each of the four kids a, a sheet of paper and put them in all four different corners. And she said, the question was, which tire was flat? Jesus is saying, let your character your reputation for honesty be obviously true and undefiled without duplicity. That no one would think it necessary to put you under an oath or suspect you of deception. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, 
What Jesus is giving us is some instruction on how to live a life as kingdom people that reflect the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus got angry, but his anger was controlled by his character and his spirit. Jesus told the truth. Virginia Stem Owen, who was a professor at uh, Texas A&M, gave her freshman class uh, an assignment of reading the Sermon on the Mount and then responding to it and with some uh, reflections and, 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 and thoughts. And she was a bit surprised by what she got back. One said, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Someone else said, the, thing asked in the, sermon, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I've ever heard. How do we respond when we hear Jesus' words? Do we take it seriously and believe that by the power of the Spirit of God within us, we can live the kind of life that he's asked us to live? And that this is the kind of life which will bring us joy, fulfillment, and meaning, rather than losing the joy and the fun of life? When we conclude our service, we have Stephen's people come, uh, ministry's people come forward and uh, be available for prayer. And I would venture to say that in our congregation, all of us, in some way or another, struggle with the issues that Jesus is addressing, whether it be anger, lust, or truthfulness. And part of what we do as the body of Christ is to encourage one another to live up to what Jesus is inviting us to, to do. And sometimes that means that we come to a brother and sister and say, look, I'm struggling here. This is a tough thing for me. And I need prayer. I need my brothers and sisters to surround me and to encourage me and to help me in that process. And that's not something that we need to be ashamed of. That's not something that we share because, you know, we're, we're, we're somehow uh, out of step. It's simply that we are human beings and that Jesus has come to indwell us and enable us to overcome some of these issues. And we do that by simply calling a brother and sister and saying, hey, I need your help. I need your prayer. I need your encouragement. That's part of what the community of believers is all about. And so I just encourage you, I know we, week after week we're going to have the, the, the Stevens people up here and uh, take advantage of it. There's no shame in doing that. We walk together. We struggle together. By the Spirit of God and by the people of God who surround us and they enable us to do what Jesus called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us again of what you call us to, to be. And we pray that we might be people of integrity, uh, people who are peacemakers, people, Father, who treat one another not as objects, but as your beautiful creation and, uh, and, and respond 
in the way that you would find fitting for us. So we commit ourselves to you again and ask that you continue to protect us by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.